Never before have we had such a blessed opportunity to build the more perfect union of our founders' dreams. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the true genius of America. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! We are free at last! America, we have come so far. We have seen so much. But there's so much more to do. It was 1036 BC in the United Kingdom of Israel. King Saul and a small force of Israelite militiamen was camped near Michmash. You might ask, well, what were they doing there? The answer is very simple. You see, the Philistines had come up with an enormous army to conquer this nation of Israel. Saul was naturally very, very afraid, as were the other Israelites. But they were waiting for something. There was a period of inaction. And you can only imagine how that inaction played on the nerves of Saul and his men. As they waited, desertion started to take over. First one man, then another. And then it seemed like his army was just melting away. Day after day, they would get up in the morning and there were less men in the camp. Well, what were they waiting for? They were waiting for the arrival of the priest and prophet Samuel to come and offer sacrifice to God. And Samuel wasn't coming. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 8 that he, Saul, waited for seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring here the burnt offering to me and peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Now you might think, well, that's no big deal. What's stopping Saul from offering the burnt offering? Well, the Bible goes on and it says, of course, you know, as we would expect, as soon as Saul had done this, guess who turns up? Samuel turns up and Samuel says, what did you do? And we would think to ourselves, well, you know, King Saul, he did a very righteous thing. He's offering a burnt offering. Why wouldn't he do this? Samuel goes on and Samuel says in verse 13, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom upon Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has found him a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded you. 
What was the problem here? What would hold you back from offering an offering? Why wasn't Saul supposed to do so? And why was that only Samuel's prerogative to offer that offering? We're going to look a little bit further. And we're going to investigate a little bit more into this subject. Let's move down in time now to 751 BC. This time we find ourselves in the independent kingdom of Judah. Our story is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and we begin in verse 16. The Bible says that when he, that is King Uzziah, was strong, his heart, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. The Bible talks about King Uzziah as a good king. And here you find King Uzziah worshipping God. You would think once again, this is a good thing for the king to be worshipping God and to be offering incense at this particular point in the temple of God. The Bible says that Azariah the priest went in after him and with him 80 other priests of the Lord that were brave men and they withstood Uzziah. That's, that's a bold thing to do when Uzziah is the king of the nation. It doesn't belong to you, Isaiah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. Neither shall it be for your honor from the Lord your God. Then Isaiah was angry. He had a censer in his hand. The Bible says that he got rather upset about the priests telling him what he could and he could not do. You see, he's the king of Israel. He's sovereign ruler. Can't he do whatever he wants? Can't he go in and offer incense in the temple of God? While he was angry with the priests, the Bible says, leprosy rose up on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. And behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they threw him out from there. Yes, he hurried also to go out. Because the Lord had smitten him. The Bible says, And Isaiah was a leper until the day of his death. Many, many years later. What is the problem here? What is the lesson that God is trying to teach in these two circumstances? Well, very simply, the lesson here is that separation needs to exist between church and state, religion and politics. When the ancient constitution of the nation of Israel was written, there was position for a king. There was allowances for that political leader. But there was also the positions that were to be held by the priests. And these two were not to overlap with each other. One was a political position, the other was a religious position. And God made those two positions separate when he established a nation. Now, if we come down to Revelation chapter 13, we've been looking at the United States in Bible prophecy. Let's go over there and let's see what is taking place right down here at the end of time in Revelation 13. What does the Bible say will be taking place in the United States? Because we know that separation of church and state has been central to the United States. 
In verse 13, the Bible says that he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men and deceives those that live on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to those that live on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and lived. So when we look at these passages right here, we find exactly what the United States is going to do and is doing right now. And that is making an image to the beast, an image to the church of the Dark Ages, a carbon copy, if you like. The church of the Dark Ages was, by definition, a union of church and state, and it remains so. The Vatican is entirely its own country with its own passports, postal service, police force, army, a government called the Holy See, a judicial system called the Inquisition, etc. It receives ambassadors from every important nation on earth. Now, no other church receives ambassadors. It is able to do this because it is not just a church, but also a country, a micro-nation, but also a superpower. It was the union of church and state that led to the tremendous persecution of religious minorities during the Dark Ages that was finally brought to an end in 1798 by Napoleon abolishing the papal government. The Vatican Inquisition was one of the primary means by which the persecution and the death penalty in particular were used to take millions of lives. And torture was the primary means by which confessions of heresy were achieved. As we have learned, the United States was determined never to allow an environment in which the Inquisition could ever exist. By looking at the dominant power across the Atlantic, they were able to form a constitution that guaranteed separation of church and state, freedom of religion, and outlawed any form of coercion and torture. This, of course, was anathema to the Vatican, as it was the very opposite of their dogma. And in 1864, Pope Pius IX published a syllabus of errors with several of them specifically targeting the United States Constitution. Pope Pius IX stated that it was an error that every man is free to embrace or profess that religion which guided by the light of reason he shall consider true. He went on to say it was an error that the church has no power of force, nor has she any temporal power, direct or indirect. Then in 1899, Pope Leo XIII named a heresy after the United States Constitution, and finally in 1903 he wrote an entire encyclical against the United States Constitution. He stated, Let us examine that liberty in individuals which is so opposed to the virtue of religion, namely the liberty of worship as it is called. This is based on the principle that every man is free to profess as he may choose any religion or none. A liberty such as we have described is no liberty but degradation. These actions started a process that caused the United States to break all diplomatic ties with the Vatican and created an environment in which those entrusted with interpreting the Constitution in the United States, the Supreme Court justices, were as typically anti-Vatican aligned as possible. Now, the Bible describes the United States forming an image, and an image is a copy, 
and to form a copy of the papal system, the United States must repudiate its own constitution. What few realize is that in the United States, the most powerful level of government is the Supreme Court. Congress and the President can make any law that they want, but it is the nine unelected Supreme Court justices that get to choose how those laws are interpreted. In the last 40 years, the Supreme Court has been systematically dismantling those aspects of the United States Constitution that separate it from being an inquisitional system of justice. As far back as the early 1980s, keen observers were seeing the trajectory and commenting on the growing dangers. The Religious News Service in 1983 stated, The US Supreme Court has fundamentally changed the ground rules separating church and state. In a term marked by one blockbuster decision after another, the US Supreme Court has altered lines of demarcation between church and state in the United States. By 1990, one Supreme Court Justice, William Rehnquist, was confident enough to go on record stating, The wall of separation between church and state is a metaphor based on bad history, a metaphor which has proved useless as a guide to judging. It should be frankly and explicitly abandoned. By 2002, leading evangelicals were coming out of the closet to demand an end to the separation of church and state. In the Road to Victory rally that year, one reporter reported that Many of the speakers railed against the separation of church and state. Joyce Meyer summed up the sentiment stating, Separation of church and state is a deception of Satan. The Benny Hinn Show, in a statement that could almost be taken directly from the warning in Revelation 13, said, I will tear down this separation between church and state. I will use miracles to do it. We read that in the Bible a moment ago. In recent years, we have had an avalanche of cases where religious liberty has been trampled on. For example, there is the case of Kim Davis, Rowan County clerk, who refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples based on her religious convictions and was imprisoned for her faith. Presidential candidate Mike Huckabee described it as the criminalization of Christianity and Ted Cruz styled it as judicial judicial tyranny, pointing out that she was in prison for no other reason than for her faith. In 2017, Donald Trump came to power promising to abolish the Johnson Amendment, a key piece of legislation guaranteeing separation of church and state. He did so by executive order just five months after coming to power. Now we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic and religious liberties along with the right for a person to worship according to their conscience have been trampled on in every state. You see, whether it is right or wrong to not gather for worship is immaterial to the right to be able to do so which is afforded by the United States Constitution. Many would argue that this is the cost of freedom. COVID has become a crisis that has been used to set precedences to strip away religious liberties that will never be returned. At the same time that all of this was beginning uh, to gain momentum back in the 1990s, torture, the primary tool of the Inquisition, was being systematically reintroduced to the American system. No longer was there a right to silence. Chief Justice Byron White recognized it for exactly what it was when he said, 
permitting a coerced confession which could be part of evidence on which a jury is free to base its guilty, its verdict of guilty, is incompatible with the thesis that ours is not an inquisitional system of criminal justice. Did you catch the language? An inquisitional system of justice. This Chief Justice stated that an image to the Vatican had been formed in the United States. And of course, by the time the war on terror arrived, torture had become routine in places like Guantanamo Bay. Throughout this time, of course, it is instructive to look at where the United States has focused its attention at the international level. The greatest historical enemies of the Vatican are Islam, the Orthodox Church, the Protestantism and Communism. Throughout the 1260 years of the Dark Ages, historians estimate that 120 to 150 million people lost their lives from amongst these faith groups at the hands of the Vatican, of course, except for communism. Since the 6th century, Islam has been a constant thorn in the side of the Vatican and the Orthodox Church since the 11th century. Protestantism rose in the 16th century to protest against the government of the Church in Rome. The Bolsheviks received funding from the Vatican as they were seen as a means to bring an end to the Orthodox Church until they were bought out by the Patriarch of Moscow and double-crossed the Vatican. Starting with the Vietnam War, every conflict that the United States has involved itself in has been a religious war. And every war has focused on the traditional enemies of the Vatican, with the exception of Protestantism. You see, it seems that the Protestants in the United States have moved away from protesting and taken up the project of creating a copy or image of the Vatican. Now let's move on and look at what has been happening with the makeup of the Supreme Court. Has the United States been forming a copy of the Vatican at its most powerful level of government? Because the inquisitional system of the Vatican was the direct opposite of the United States Constitution, Americans used to be all about protecting their Constitution, they were extremely reticent to appoint Roman Catholic judges, justices, to the Supreme Court. Since independence, there have been 216 Supreme Court justices. Only 14 have been Roman Catholic. But what is significant is that in the last 10 years, there has not been a single Protestant on the Supreme Court. The newest member put forward by Donald Trump, Amy Coney Barrett, is possibly the most devout. She's a professor of law at the Roman Catholic Notre Dame University, the largest privately owned university in the United States. She formerly worked for Chief Justice Antonin Scalia, who, while a Supreme Court justice, stated, when religious rights clash with the government's need for uniform rules, the court will side with the government. Religious adherents need to look to the political system, not to the courts for protection. Think about that for a moment. The purpose for a constitution is to limit the power of the government and protect the rights of the minorities. The government never needs protection due to the fact that it is the majority. Scalia, in effect, stated that people of faith must form a majority and elect a government to receive any level of protection. If they happen to be a minority, then they have no legal protection whatsoever at all. This is what we call, very simply, mob rule. 
And it was mob rule that signaled the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. As the United States reforms itself into a copy of medieval Europe, it is moving away from being a republic and forming an empire system of government. Reporting on the actions of Scalia, the Washington Post stated, the problem with the Smith decision is that the United States Supreme Court has gutted the free exercise of the First Amendment. The LA Times went on to say the Supreme Court today forcefully declared that it would no longer protect believers. If we go to John chapter 6, just the Gospel of John chapter 6, let's turn over there very quickly and see what Jesus had to say because we find a form and a system of government vastly different from the governments that we see here on this earth. John chapter 6, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with Jesus. Did you catch that? Here Jesus is being being deserted by his followers. Then said Jesus to the twelve, Will you also go away? Of course, Peter answered. Peter always kind of answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that you are Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one is a devil? But he spoke of Judas Iscariot. You know, when you put this whole story together, did Jesus use force to coerce his followers to follow him? Did he say, this is the only religion where there is any kind of salvation, therefore this is the religion that you must be a part of? No, Jesus was totally against any kind of force. And even within the twelve, that stayed with him right to the end, the whole time, he knew that Judas was there. And that whole time he could have done something about that. He's God. He's sovereign ruler of the universe. He could act in relationship to Judas. But that entire time he was appealing to Judas right down to the very end. He was saying, Judas, I know who you are. I know what you're thinking. And the fact that I know what you're thinking should tell you who I am and that what you are doing is wrong. Jesus was appealing to him. He wasn't driving him away. He knew that Judas would betray him. When we go a little bit further on in the Gospel of John, let's go to John chapter 18 now. John chapter 18. And I want you to notice once again, Jesus' attitude towards these particular issues. John chapter 18 and verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not of this world. I want you to notice the principle that Jesus is, Jesus is establishing here. Jesus did not come to this world to build an earthly kingdom. He came to this world to establish the religion of Christianity, a religion of peace and harmony and happiness, a religion of love where there is no force and there is no coercion. And because he came to establish a religion, he did not involve himself in issues of state. 
He did not come to this world to set up a kingdom, to become a king, if he had have done, as he pointed out right here. He would have sent his servants out to fight. That was kind of what the Jews were expecting, that he would raise an army and that he would establish the Jewish empire to rule gloriously over all of the world. But Jesus is like, no, that's not what I'm about. I am here to bring you to God. The politics and the political situation leave that separate from what I am doing. Jesus is establishing very, very clearly the separation of church and state. This is a principle that has existed in the Bible from its very beginning and exists right down to its very end. And that is why the Bible is so intent on warning us about what is going to take place in the future. Warning us that an image will be formed, a copy of the system that ruled during the Dark Ages. We look back at the Dark Ages, the medieval period, the Middle Ages, whatever you want to call it, and we say, you know, that could never return to this world. Our world is far too advanced and civilized for that. But no historian will agree with you, because all historians know that history is cyclical. It goes around. And what has been here in the past will be here in the future. In Revelation chapter 13, the Bible says some significant things. Revelation 13, the Bible says he had power to give life to the image of the beast, to the image of the beast. This is the copy of the medieval system. Would both speak and force, notice that word right there, as many as would not worship the image to be killed. Now, I agree with Amy, Coney, Barrett. That is a bad thing to have the death penalty. That's my view. But here we find at the very end of time that the death penalty comes back. And where does it come back for? It comes back against people of faith, people who are following Jesus Christ, who are being forced to worship in a way that is not according to their conscience. Revelation chapter 3, once again, we see the attitude of Jesus to people. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice, this is Jesus speaking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will eat with him and he with me. Is Jesus coming to that door, breaking the door down, chaining up the inhabitants, dragging them off and placing them in church and saying, you must worship me. No, that's not what Jesus is doing. And that's not what Jesus will ever do. The Bible says he comes to the door of your heart and he knocks. The decision is entirely yours. He will never force you. If you want to open the door, that's up to you. The power to open that door has been given to you by Jesus dying on the cross. Are you going to use that power or not? Will you give your life to Jesus today? The Bible says that Jesus wants to do more than just come in. It says he wants to come in and he wants to eat with you. Why why does the Bible say that? Shouldn't we just all be talking about morality? The answer is very simple, friends. Jesus wants more than just your decision to serve him. When we share food as human beings, 
we draw close together. You can go to any nation on the earth. You can go to any race or group or language or wherever. When people want to draw close together in a close personal relationship, they do that over food. They share food together. Jesus wants to have that kind of relationship with you. And he wants to have it with you today. Won't you give your life to him? We are so glad you joined us here on the N.Digital for America and the End. In this series, really, we've just managed to scratch the surface of everything that Bible prophecy has to say about what is happening in the world right now. And because we've only just begun to unpack such a big subject, we're going to extend to you a very special free offer. If you would like to have personal Bible studies, or if you would like to have your own copy of my Bible study series called The Prophetic Code, then simply call or text the number that you see on your screen right now, and we would love to extend this offer to you. Good evening and welcome back to America and the Ends Nightly Q&A. We are so happy that you would join us tonight. Uh, I hope that you appreciated the presentation as much as I did. I'm here with Sharissa Tarosian, Justin Tarosian, and Lyle Southwell, as I have been for the last <laughs> five nights of our, our America and the End series. Um, we are doing live Q&A for those of you guys who are joining us for the first time every evening after every presentation of this series of presentations. We are open to any question that you have, especially if the question that you have is relating to tonight's message. So we'll prioritize the questions that come in by how relevant they are to tonight's presentation. And further to that, if you're on Facebook, YouTube, all you have to do is type into your, uh, what do they call it, guys? Chat. Into your chat thread. And uh, we have a moderator watching who will just uh, feed those questions to us and we'll be able to field your questions. Before we get to any questions tonight, I just wanted to say to the team, what do you think of tonight's presentation? What stood out to you? What was really amazing? What did you think was new or, you know, anything or while, is there anything you'd want to? I don't know. It's just an exciting, it was an exciting subject to uh, put together. Mm. Um, you know, this is something I've been watching for many years. And one of the reasons that I've been watching this as closely as I have was because of uh, some time ago reading uh, some chapters from the book, The Great Controversy, which is our free offer. Yes. And of course, this was written by uh, Justin's great, great grandmother. Um, and so it's kind of cool that we get to offer that here for free. <laughs> Um, but, you know, reading some of the chapters on that that actually deal with, you know, the, the, the U.S. Constitution coming down, um, religious liberty being undermined, and these prophecies in Revelation 13 coming to fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of started me on a path of, you know what, I'm going to start actually watching this. And so I've been watching it for quite a number of years. I was 15 when I first read that book, mm, and yeah. uh, it was just really quite, um, yeah, inspiring and mind-blowing at the same time. And so interesting because so much of what I read when I was 15, you know, it's, like, it's kind of like we're several chapters more through the book now than what we were back then. So I'd encourage everybody just, you know, um, call the number. It's on the screen. It's on the, it's on the uh, message there if, uh, if it's not on the screen. Just call the number. Grab your free copy. It's, uh, it's fantastic material. Yeah. yeah, powerful. I was just going to say there were some powerful dynamite quotes that you shared in that presentation, Lyle, that really bring to light just how close we are 
to the final scenes of Revelation 13 uh, taking place. You know, it's not like even 40, 60 years ago, the, <clears throat> the position of those in the Supreme Court in regards to the separation of church and state was very clear. There's to be a wall that is high and, and impenetrable, you know, between government and religion and uh, church and state, as it were. And those quotes that you brought out just point out how much further down the prof- the track of prophecy we are to that point where those two powers will merge and eventually persecute God's people. And, and on that, if you look at the time frame in which, you know, your great-great-grandmother wrote that book, mm. back then, you know, she was writing it based on what the Bible says in Revelation yeah. 13, and people thought it was ludicrous. Mm. But we live now when it's like, yeah, okay, this is actually a reality. We are mm-hmm. seeing it take place. This is, yeah. this is no conspiracy theory here. This is what's being publicly and openly reported in the press. Yeah. Can I just add, I found that to be a very faith-affirming presentation, mm. and it really reminded me that now's the time for us to have a relationship with Jesus because, mm. as you both said, you know, prophecy is being fulfilled. History is going just where... Bible says it would go, and now's mm. the time for us to love the Lord, to mm. know Him, so we can be ready when Jesus comes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. My father served in the Vietnam War as a combat veteran, and he used to say to me, when he first became acquainted with these great truths of the prophecy, that he couldn't, cons- he couldn't see how it could ever be that the United States would renege on the U.S. Constitution, that, mm. as you said in the presentation, that the principles of the Constitution could be repudiated. Um, if he were alive today, I think he, he would uh, be astounded mm-hmm. at how far we've gone towards taking away the right to worship God in accordance with the dictates mm-hmm. of your conscience. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, because I often speak to uh, Vietnam vets about this particular subject right here and ask them, do you really know what was going on in Vietnam? You've got a situation where you've got Ho Chi Minh in the north who basically, you know, when he first starts off, he makes a carbon copy almost, of the United States Constitution. Yeah, he adds a communist twist to it. And then you've got, you know, the, the government of Diem in the South um, who was vehemently against religious liberty. And, of course, you know, for those who were alive back then, you remember there was Buddhist monks that were burning themselves. This was all happening in the South because their religious liberty was being taken away with. And which side was the United States on? It's an interesting discussion to have. <laughs> Yeah, well. So, any other highlights from tonight's presentation? You mentioned the quotes, Justin. Some of these quotes that you shared were stirring. Mm-hmm. Rehnquist's uh, quote from the Supreme Court, that's shocking, yeah. that the idea of the separation of church and state is a metaphor based on bad history. Mm-hmm. I don't know, know the context of that statement, but that was heavy. Mm-hmm. To see a Supreme Court justice saying that, right? And to see popular religious figures um, yeah. also saying the same thing, that was pretty yeah. shocking. And And... You know, where, you know, if you look at where Chief Justice William Rehnquist is coming from in making that statement, he's saying, look, we made this wall of separation between church and state back in the day because there was bad history in Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, so our founding fathers were looking across the Atlantic, you know, across the ditch for Americans. That's New Zealand for Australia. For Americans, <laughs> that's Europe. They were looking at the Inquisition and they were saying, okay, how can we make sure this doesn't, it was a reaction to the bad history of the Inquisition, but then he turns around and says, it's useless. Mm. <laughs> it's very unfortunate to say the least. <laughs> mm. Yeah, wow. Okay, so what today, in you guys' opinion, is the gravest violations that we're seeing of the separation clause? 
There was a, there was a woman mentioned in the presentation tonight. She was a government employee who worked in the United States and was unwilling to uh, grant wedding licenses to those of the same sex. And she was arrested uh, and in prison. Is that right? She was put in jail, not in prison. Um, that's pretty shocking to me. Maybe I'm, I'm having too much to say here. <laughs> but maybe I could just share one story that I actually shared on Faith FM this morning. Uh, a couple in Idaho, uh, they were grandparents. They were seeking a license to become foster carers so that they could become the foster parents for their grandchildren. Now, we know that you know all research indicates that if children can be kept you know, if they have to be removed from their family, if they can, if they're, 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 you know, their immediate family, if they can still be kept with family, mm-hmm. that's always going to be the best outcome for them. Now, of course, to get that foster care license, they were interviewed, they were asked a whole bunch of questions. Some of those questions were, um, how would you respond if, um, and what level of support would you give if this, you know, this young girl who was to be come into their foster care, their, their, their granddaughter, um, what if she asked to have, what if, she's, what if she said that she was lesbian and asked to have a friend stay overnight with her in her room who was a romantic friend? And I'm thinking, this is a child. <laughs> you know, regardless of the fact of um, whether it's lesbian or not, why are we having this conversation about a child? What kind of a parent is going to let you know, children have a romantic get-together overnight in their home. Yeah, right. Mm. Uh, you know, other questions that she was asked, they were asked were things like, you know, ha- what level of support would you provide if she decided to take hormone therapy, therapy to change her appearance to a different sex? And, of course, being devout Christians, they gave a very standard orthodox you know, a Christian answer to these questions. There was nothing strange about what they said. They just gave a biblical, you know, kind of like what all Christians stand for. And, of course, they were denied a foster care license based on that mm-hmm. because of their faith, because of their belief in the Bible. You know, these are pretty severe infringements on religious liberty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you don't, li- you, you don't have to like her views, no. To support her right to have them, right? That's right. Absolutely. That's right. You don't have to yeah. be a Christian. You don't have to agree. But we can all agree, hopefully, we all should be able to agree that that right and that freedom to make that decision, uh, as it's not harming anyone in any way, should be theirs. Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. Well, guys, let's go ahead and get to some of the questions that are coming in here from Facebook and YouTube. Um, so Leah has asked the question, uh, and I'm reading... How do you get the general person to see the significance of the fact that their freedoms are being taken from them in the name of the supposed common good? <laughs> Sorry, could you I've, said, I've, said, I've said I've had too much to say. How already. do you get the general person to see the significance of the fact that their freedoms are being taken from them in the name of the supposed common good? I've got a great suggestion, actually. Direct them to the end of digital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's the whole purpose of our series, or it's a major part of our series, and a major purpose of our series is to hopefully wake people up to uh, the freedoms that we are losing, that we have lost, that the Bible says we will lose. And the reason for this is because, as Sharissa mentioned earlier, 
Christ is ultimately the one who offers us freedom, freedom of choice, freedom and victory in our lives. And uh, we would love as many people as possible to come to understand the beautiful contrast of the goodness of God uh, in contrast to the beasts of Revelation 13. I think education goes a long way. Mm. I know that the, the framers of the Constitution, they really believe that the enduring, the lastingness, I don't know how to put it any, in the proper English right now, but to make the Constitution last, the people of America had to be educated as to its history, as yeah. to why it was important. And uh, I don't know that they're probably as aware as they should be mm-hmm. of what they should have. Yeah. You can add, Lyle. We, we, you, that's why you're here. Nothing to add to what these guys just said. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Good, good answers, guys. Okay, um, hope that helped, Leah. Uh, Mozart from YouTube has uh, asked a question here. Uh, since persecution is normally directed against the minority, what happens to a denomination of Christianity which boasts of success by numbers yet professes to be the, the one to stand against the beast? Don't know if I understand that question necessarily, but I'm going to read it again. Mm. Yeah, go ahead. Since persecution is normally directed against the minority, what happens to a denomination of Christianity which boasts of success by numbers, yet professes to be the one to stand against the beast? Okay, gotcha. I think I get it. He's in essence saying, um, if you're boasting that you're growing so fast, and you're boasting that your church is, you know, circumnavigating the the globe and and its mission and whatnot, um, how can you then assume to be the minority who's standing against the beast. You know, there's uh, just Revelation 13, just coming back here. <clears throat> and great question, Mozart. Revelation 13, verse 14, it says, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he which granted to do inside of the first beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Now, the sea beast, as we find earlier in Revelation 13, it says that he was wounded uh, and his deadly wound was healed. And this is verse 3 of Revelation 13. All the world marveled and followed the beast. Mm. Um, so virtually the entire world will be following this beast power, these beast powers at the end of time. And uh, this will be a massive global thing. Now, we're actually talking about this in one of our presentations later. It's based upon Revelation chapter 14, and it's God's response, basically, uh, to this worldwide, almost worldwide deception. Because as the world becomes polarized into two groups, um, God's truth will shine brighter and brighter. There will be a revival of primitive godliness. The Bible calls it the latter rain. And uh, in message number eight, the second to last one of our series, uh, don't miss it. Sharissa is going to be talking about it and uh, what it is that sparks that revival. And so, um, yeah, I hope that answers your question just a bit in the sense that um, the Bible says that virtually the entire world will be either deceived or will willfully go along with the force that this beast power will inflict upon those who don't worship the image that it sets up. But praise God, he will have a people who will stand for the right and for truth, uh, the truths of the Bible, though everything else in the world seems to be falling apart, and even in the midst of deep persecution. Mm. You know, in Revelation chapter 14, in verse 6, it says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them who dwell upon the earth, every nation, kindred, tongue, Mm. and people. And so, God's uh, prophet says that at the end of time, the everlasting gospel, as 
communicated through three angels there in Revelation chapter 14, will be preached in all of the world to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And therefore, we see from the Bible that God's last day movement will be a movement that it affects the world and it preaches the gospel to the world. And so then it would be boasting about numbers, not boasting in the arrogant, egotistical sense, but boasting in the boasting in Jesus sense and glorifying God because of sense. And so, uh, but yet at the same time, you see all the persecutions outlined in Revelation 13. Um, so yes, you can be a movement that is growing and opposing the beast and his image and the worship of the beast's image. And at the same time, be a persecuted group. We see the same thing with the early Christian church. Mm, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23, that I have preached the gospel to every creature under the heavens. And many expositors of the Bible see that as Paul saying, we have reached the known world. Mm. Now, did the Christian church, according to Paul, reach the known world? Yes, well, he explicitly says so. (laughs) He says it. Um, But were the Christians persecuted? Why, yes. And were they opposing the enemies of God at the time on a spiritual level. Why, yes. And so there is no contradiction in terms here uh, when we say that God's movement is growing in numbers, it's affecting the world positively, but yet it's still a minority. Because in comparison to the, the, the many, many billions. billions of people on the planet, it is still a small minority, just like early Christianity was too. There's, a, there's, another, there's another context in which you could place that question. And of course, we don't, we don't know what the question is asking because we're just getting through on the text. But if you looked at it from the context of, let's say that you have a world religion that is, um, you know, already dominating the world, as in, you know, has the most numbers, is the biggest, you know, denomination or religion or whatever it was on the earth. How do they then persecute, I guess, themselves, so to speak? And so what is actually going on here? Why would there be persecution against Christians if Christians are dominating the world? And so if we were to take the question from that perspective, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would go to Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, where it says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth to the kings of the earth, and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now, when I read this here, in essence, what you've got is dragon, beast, and false prophet. We don't have time to go into the details of who they are this evening. Let's just suffice to say that these all exist within the realm of religion. Now, they then go out to the kings of the earth. That's the political leaders of the world. And so you've got the religions of the world uniting together to go to the political leaders of the world to draw the political leaders of the world together, you have a uniting together, a corrupt uniting together against God at the end of time. Now, so often people come to me and they say, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I don't have anything to do with religion. I don't like religion because religion is corrupt. And I totally agree. And that's exactly what the Bible says right here. The Bible says that at the end of time, religion will be corrupt. We should expect to see corruption in religion, and we should expect to see it on a large scale. We should expect to see religions that are ripping people off and taking their money and doing all kinds of terrible things because that's what the Bible prophesies. That's the condition that we should expect. You know, I think as as Christians, and I know for myself, my natural reaction is always to defend Christianity whenever it's attacked. But then I've got to remind myself that, well, the Bible says that, yeah, okay, Christianity at the end of time 
you know, it's hardly going to be worth defending. It's not going to be worth defending, but the word of God is worth defending because this right here you can trust. And it will stand forever. Mm. So good, guys. Um, I hope that that is a satisfactory answer, uh, Mozart. I think that the Spirit of God uh, spoke through you guys. It was awesome. So Carly on Facebook is asking, how do you think COVID has impacted on the separation of church and state? Should we be standing up against those restrictions to gather for worship, even here in Australia? Very relevant question. Mm. It's a very relevant question. What is, interesting, question. what is interesting here in Australia is that we have no legal framework to do so. Mm. Unlike the United States, we don't have the legal framework to stand up against the restrictions that are placed on the churches if we, if we thought that was the best thing to do. Mm. Yeah, and and um, on that note, I would just add um, that I think that we as Christians, the Bible is clear. It says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, we should pray for government leaders. Um, in fact, it says that we should pray for, for government leaders. And I don't want to just quote it to you. I'd like to read it to you. It says to make thanks in our prayers and with intercessions and give thanks for all men. This is verse 2 of 1 Timothy 2. For kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Mm. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Mm. Um, in addition to this, there are places in the Bible where it's very clear that we should do everything that we can uh, that we can conscientiously do um, to follow the instructions of our government leaders. Um, if and when it comes to a point where those government leaders tell us to do something or require something of us that is against the word of God, and this is very clear, then obviously in that case we'll have to go with the word of God and to courteously communicate that to whoever is uh, in leadership that we would do everything we could to be a good citizen of this nation, but first of all, we're a nation of heaven, and um, that we have to follow God. As it says in Acts 5, verse 29, as the early apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. Um, when it comes to the topic of, and the, you know, the point about uh, worshiping, and do we gather together in spite of restrictions? There's some science that says, well, hey, it doesn't matter if you're breathing or singing or talking, like it's the same amount of contagion potential. Um, personally, the position that we've taken in our church is it doesn't slow us down or stop us. And thankfully, we've been able to worship, um, you know, in the within the guidelines, the restrictions since June 12, we've been able to worship together and we're blessed to be able to do so. But um, we said initially when the lockdown happened, well, let's respect uh, the wishes and the acts, the decision of the government leaders. We can transition and worship online. So it's not like we're not connecting spiritually and that we're not worshiping together, um, but we're, we were still worshiping, yet we were worshiping uh, online. And this was because we said we don't believe our government leaders are intentionally trying to you know, target us as Christians, that we can't worship. It'd be one thing if we were getting picked on and it was only churches that couldn't meet. But it was just about, it was virtually every phase of life, every area of life that the shutdown reached and touched. And so because of that, um, it wasn't any specific persecution. And, um, however, I will say 
For those in America, like uh, Pastor John MacArthur or others who say, listen, it's our constitutional right in this nation, that is them over in America, they said it's our constitutional right to gather together peaceably, we're doing that, and therefore we're going to exercise our God-given right because worshiping together is something that is essential to us. And so I respect those that have made that stand, and um, I support them in standing for those constitutional rights. I think I think what COVID has done is it has highlighted the the legal difference between the United States and Australia, mm. where the United States has religious liberty as an inalienable right. Australia has religious liberty as an assumption mm. that on occasion is protected by some very loose exemptions in law. But that's all we have. Mm. And when it comes to the right of you know, freedom of assembly and freedom of speech, once again, in the United States, that's a part of the Constitution. And because, you know, Australia is kind of this vassal state of America, we often assume that, you know, well, if America has that as a right, we have it here in Australia as well. Well, we don't. And we've seen that in Victoria where people have, you know, gone to organise a protest in the past. Protesters have always just organized protests whenever they felt like it, and nobody's done anything about it. Mm -hmm. But now for the first time, the laws that have always existed have actually been enacted, and what did we see yesterday? 400 protesters arrested in Victoria. I think that's got to be a record for Australia. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't see protesters being Mm -hmm. arrested in Australia in the past because it was kind of political suicide Mm -hmm. to arrest people that were protesting. Well, now... You know, that's all changed. And it's not that the law has changed. It's what we thought was the law is not actually there. Mm -hmm. There is no legal protection for religious liberty here in Australia. And if we think that there is, we're dreaming. Mm -hmm. So, Lyle, are you saying that in in the countries like Australia that are associated closely with the United States, allies of the United States, they grant their citizens rights by association with the country that has rights. Mm. Those rights. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah, there's, a, there's, there's an assumption. We've always kind of lived under those rights. Um, we've assumed that we have them um, because, you know, nobody's ever been prosecuted for any of these kind of things in the past. We've always like, well, you know, I've got the right for this, the right for that, right, right, the right for the other. This is Australia. We don't have that. Mm-hmm. And very few people realize that doesn't exist in this country. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. Uh, thank you, Carly, for the question. I hope that that answer has helped. I, uh, it's, uh, on to the next question now. Harry Chanel from Facebook is uh, writing in and asking, the image in the book of Daniel in the last days is made up of clay and iron, which is molded together representing church and state, Rome, being of iron and clay molded into the church. How is that church and state become, how is it that church and state became separate or become separated? Okay, so I can help anyone who doesn't understand Daniel chapter 2, kind of know where Harry's coming from in his question. In Daniel chapter 2, uh, God gives a prophecy through the depiction of a great metal image that's composed of four different kinds of metal. It has a head of gold, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron. And then the feet of this image are iron and clay mixed together. When you read Daniel chapter 2, you see there that those metals represent different kingdoms. And so these are this is a, a scope of history being presented in the form of an image. So 
Um, you have the first nation that's represented there by the head of gold. Represent, that's, that's the Neo-Babylonian Empire uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and then, so basically the prophecy chronicles the various nations that come throughout the course of history. And then the, the fourth nation, the Iron Legs, represents the ancient kingdom of Rome. And then Rome divides into feet of iron and clay. So that's just a short synopsis of Daniel chapter 2. And so the question says, with that synopsis, so just listen in again, the image of the book of Daniel in the last days is made up of clay and iron. So it's saying the feet that represent just the end of time in that prophecy of Daniel 2 is uh, described as iron and clay feet. And so um, it seems there from the prophecy, you all might not follow this question, but we do, I think. Um, And so the, the question is, is if Daniel 2 pre- pre- presents church and state seemingly being mingled together in the feet of iron and clay, how do we come off saying that there's been a separation of church and state? Or how, that church and state should be separate? Is that how you guys understand the question? Yeah, so, yeah totally understand it, totally follow. Yeah. I would just say um, the, the ten toes of the statue in Daniel t- chapter 2 represent the ten tribes, the barbarian tribes that conquered, divided Europe, and led to seven of them, because three got wiped out by Rome. Um, seven of them uh, led to the, the rise of the modern European countries that we see today. Um, when we look at the 1260 years of the Dark Ages in Europe, it was church and state united. Often they were battling against each other. Uh, but the papacy was essentially dominating the kings and queens of Europe. Um, the United States, though we see is a nation that rises up out of the earth. This is Revelation chapter 13 from 11 onward, 11 to 18. And this was a reaction to, as we've covered in, in some of the series, this and the Constitution that formed the United States and even the Declaration of Independence, they were a reaction to the uniting of church and state in England that they were running away from, as well as the Church of the Dark Ages that was dominating Europe. So I would say, just keep in mind that the Ten Toes that led to Europe, that doesn't encompass all of the world. Um, and secondly, the United States, that earth beast that rose up out of the earth, was a reaction to and a response against the atrocities that took place uh, there in, in Europe with the combination of church and state. Excellent. I, I think in the middle of that discussion, well, it's also important, sorry. That's all right. It's also important to remember the primary application of the prophecy. And so there's a, there's a very clear analogy here between to the issue of church and state with the iron and clay. The primary application is weak nations and strong nations in a divided Europe that will never reunite together again. And, you know, we could talk about what's been happening in Europe over the last 2,000 years or over the last 10 years, and you can see that, you know, this prophecy has been fulfilled all the way down through Brexit. in that they... Yeah. Um, will never, never unite. The Bible yeah. says that you, you will never have the United States of Europe competing with the United States of America. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so David Spain now has a question from YouTube, and he asks, are you prepared to specify possible scenarios where both beasts merge and enforce worship plus the trading mark? And it's referencing the mark of the beast spoken of in Revelation 13. So are any of our presenters here tonight ready or willing to share uh, possible specific scenarios. Okay, so we've been speaking in generalities and, and sharing the basic truth of, uh, and truths of Revelation 13, but we have not been very precise and very specific. That has been uh, on purpose, 
But um, how specific can we get? And is anyone willing to kind of di- dive into that? We're going to get more specific tomorrow in the next one. Mm-hmm. So if they can just keep watching. Yep. <laughs> tomorrow and next Tuesday evening's presentations yeah. get into the, the image of the beast. That is really what Revelation 13 says pulls these forces, these powers together. But okay. I, but I don't know that we know exactly the full catalyst yeah. that will bring about this union at the end of time. Mm. But mm. it could be anything from an economic collapse or a natural disaster or some big terrorist thing. And a whole lot of things coming together mm. that will turn the world to say, hey. Mm. A pandemic? Yep, a pandemic. <laughs> that will you say know, we need to come together. One thing that it seems... One thing that seems obvious to me about history is that men like to control other men. And no matter what the pretext, the end is usually the same. Power and control over others. It seems that the unsubdued human heart is bent on controlling other people. Mm. Whether it's through uh, secular humanistic philosophy uh, or whether it's through religion. It mm-hmm. seems like people are just bent on forcing others to conform into their image of how they should be. And so, um, there's, as you said, lots of things can, can spark that. Yeah. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what you see happening in Revelation 13 is really what you, happen, you see happening all over the world throughout the course of all history. Mm-hmm. People like to control other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. And so it's just happening again. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Thank you, uh, David, for, for questioning, uh, sending that question in. Uh, Ryan from Facebook is asking... And he quotes uh, part of Revelation 13 to preempt his question. Revelation 13.15 says that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Does this mean that the image of the beast takes on its own authority, becoming an image that isn't tied to a country, but rather a movement? You know, the next presentation actually gets into that quite a bit, wouldn't you say? That's your presentation. Yes. Yes. So, in the next two presentations, Ryan, um, we're going to answer that in greater depth. But the specific uh, part of your question, I'm not sure that we answer, and that's that it becomes. Could you re- repeat well, it, that part well, of the question? Well, he, he actually omitted the beginning of Revelation 13:15, where it says. And he had power to give breath or life to the image of the beast, that the image mm. of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the, be- the image of the beast to be killed. So he's saying mm. that seems to imply that the second beast of Revelation 13 com- works together with the first beast of Revelation 13 to create a system mm. that replicates on a global scale what that first beast did on a local scale in Europe. So it seems to suggest that you, you have a, a global entity that is empowered by the United States of America to make its own decisions. Mm. Look, I, I actually think you're 100% correct. Mm. Yeah, I well, think that's, that's what, what the text infers. I think that's what the text is inferring. And the only reason, well, there might be other reasons, but the reason I think of as to why that would be true is because in the next chapter, chapter 14, where the message is God's response to chapter 13 to prepare people to stand through this last big epic crisis that will hit the world, is addressed, the three messages that God sends from heaven to the world, they're addressed to the whole world. So it must be mm. a worldwide crisis mm. that God is preparing people to, That's right. to come through. It's, 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 not, it's not as if one nation is the bad guy and all the rest are exempt. Mm. Yeah. It's going to spread. Excellent. Thanks, Ryan. That's a, that's a great, in, great insight that you're pulling out of the text. Um, okay, so Donna has uh, 
asked a question from Facebook. Is this, is it possible that COVID-19 is here to cause chaos? So our laws are thrown aside under the argument that we are in uncharted waters, thus clearing the way for a new world order and the rise of the Antichrist? It's interesting because the question that often comes up is, you know, was the virus created or, you know, is it something that just naturally arose or whatever? And what you find with these kind of crises is it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not the issue. The issue isn't whether somebody created it in a lab and let it go loose on the world. The issue is how people respond to it. Fear is the greatest driving force that there is in our world right now. And people read Revelation 13 and they go, how could that be possible? You know, and I've always struggled to answer that in the past until now. Mm. And now it's really easy to answer that question because I just want you to think about last Christmas. You're sitting around with your family. You're having a conversation with them. Let's say as you're all having that conversation with them, you said within two months, You won't be able to leave your driveway here in Australia without having a valid excuse that you can tell to the police. Good point. And they would have said, you are nuts. Mm. You are Mm. out of your mind. And two months later, it happened. Mm. And we didn't really blink that much. And within a couple of weeks, we're like, yeah, okay, this is the new reality. Mm -hmm. And we were moving on with a different form of, of life. And so... It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's created or not created. The issue is how it is used. Mm-hmm. Now, um, is this a dry run for the end of time? Well, it's kind of hard to see it as not being, mm-hmm. you know, how is it going to all pan out in the future? What's going to come out of it? We will only know as we wait and see. Mm-hmm. But I think it's definitely, you know, a little tiny, and I, and I need to emphasize this, a tiny foretaste Mm. of what could happen to bring about, very, very quickly, to bring about exactly what we're reading in Revelation 13. Revelation 13, it sounds crazy. It sounds like conspiracy theory. People say, oh, that could never happen. It's impossible. Well, look how quickly things can change when you have a crisis. Mm -hmm. As uh, Henry Kissinger once said, whether real or promulgated. Mm. 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 I agree. Great point. Yeah. yeah, I picked up on something that you said there, and that was that it doesn't matter if this was some grand conspiracy to steal away our rights. Does it really matter? Mm. What matters is, are we where we need to be in relationship to God? Because, mm. like, if, if a great crisis engulfs the world, is it really important where it came from or how it came about? Mm. Like, what does that have to do with me? How does that, like me knowing that someone conspired to take away my freedoms doesn't change the fact that my freedoms are taken away, right? Mm. And me being able to say this is the reason why or that's the reason why, the Bible doesn't often tell us all the inner workings and the behind the scenes. It just tells us what's going to be, especially in prophecy. And so I really like what you said there. That really spoke to me. And does... does me understanding a conspiracy as a work help me? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's one conspiracy I know that's at play, and that's the the spiritual wicked forces in heavenly places are conspiring against my soul so that I would be lost forever to God's purpose for my life. And so my first work and our first work is to be sure that our hearts and minds are right with God and that we're fulfilling the purpose of our design. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, I was just going to say that, um, you know, I'm not saying that this was any intentional, and Lyle wasn't saying this either, or Matt, um, that 
coronavirus was in any way some kind of intentional thing to remove people's freedoms. However, the result is, as Lyle mentioned, that we've seen how quickly our freedoms can be lost mm -hmm. in the name of safety. Mm. And I mean, well, toilet paper good. was, uh, or for the common good. Yeah. 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 In the name of the common good. Um, like, don't get me wrong. Um, I know COVID has been a, a terrible thing in many countries of the world. We've been blessed for it to not be as bad here in Australia. But statistically, far more people die every year in automobile accidents um, than, than they have from COVID uh, in our nation here in Australia. And yet no one was forbidden receiving their driver's license because they might end up getting in a car wreck. Um, and so, I mean, there are things that, that we... <laughs> we just do, even though there's a risk involved. And I'm not saying we should be insensitive to spreading COVID and all that. Not at all. But what I am saying is um, we have lost, at least systems are in place uh, and powers that be now know how quickly and how easily massive groups of people can be controlled. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's been a wake-up call. And, and on the flip side, mm -hmm. praise God, a lot of people have said, wow, this has got to be heading toward what we see in Revelation 13. Mm. Therefore, I better get ready. Mm. I baptized someone this past Sabbath by God's grace who, uh, who had said, you know, my, um, I, I want to give my life to the Lord. And uh, that was awesome to see. And so people are waking up to the fact that we all need the Lord. And a lot of people who've been running away from God for years um, are giving themselves to Him and saying, God, I want to be... Um, on Jesus' side, I want my life to be in His hands so that whatever happens in the future, I'll know that my eternal life is secure. Excellent. Thank you, Justin. So David Spain uh, has mentioned, uh, made another statement here in, uh, from, from, from YouTube and has said, I don't think the iron and clay feet of Daniel chapter 2 represent church and state. Possibly they indicate the increasingly fragile demographic in Europe of Christian and Muslim. Uh, anyone want to maybe address that statement? It's really a statement. Yeah. I'm just giving mm -hmm. uh, David's uh, statement the airtime because he's, he's taking the time to make that statement. I appreciate you sharing, David. And you guys want to maybe speak to that? What does Daniel 2 actually say itself about the feet mm -hmm. of clay and iron? Very little, really. Um, it, and it's not specifying. Okay, so what, the, what Daniel does 2 does specify is weak nations and strong nations. Mm -hmm. So we can read that straight from Daniel chapter 2, and there are, are other analogies such as church and state that can be drawn. But, you know, an important principle of understanding the Bible is to go with, you know, initially with exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says, uh, where are we? Uh, where you saw the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of potter's iron, the kingdom shall be divided there will be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as you saw iron mixed with miry clay, as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Mm. And so you've got the Bible speaks and specifies of weak and strong and brokenness mm. and not sticking together. These are the specifications that we're given here. And so, yes, we can draw analogies for all kinds of other things, such as uh, church and state. But, you know, we can't go too far on that. Mm -hmm. yeah. The Bible talks about um, Islam mm -hmm. in prophecy, but not here. Mm -hmm. That's but, another chapter for maybe another series. That would be cool. Another, <laughs> another end series. Maybe next year we'll do one. 
The end that never ends. Um, I was also thinking of a Bible verse, Isaiah 64, verse 8, which says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. I think that might be a way we could read it as a church and state thing. But that's what I, that's the only mm-hmm. way I could mm-hmm. bring it. Well, you know, so you, see, you see in the prophecy the legs of iron represent Rome, imperial Rome. So something of Rome extends into the feet. Mm-hmm. That's communicated clearly through the imagery of the prophecy. That's right. So Rome extends down into the divided period of, of Europe. Into uh, so Europe is, in fact, divided Rome. And so partially, Rome gets into Europe somehow, some way. And we see that through the church, because the Roman church is the church of the, of the Middle Ages. And so you see the church is an extension of Rome in, uh, hist- in, in, in Europe. Uh, but the text of Scripture says that the iron and the clay represent the fact that the former uh, Roman Empire will never reunite. So the nations that came from Rome will never unite again as one united Europe. So I think that's clear from the prophecy. That's unmistakable. It's, it's just right there in the text. Um, so, yeah, that's all we can say. And like uh, Deuteronomy 4, we don't add to it. We don't take away from it. And we let the Holy Spirit guide us to uh, a knowledge of the truth through it. Mm-hmm. That is our last question for the evening, guys. Thank you so much, uh, all of you. We appreciate it. Thank you guys for joining us. We appreciate your time. And uh, we appreciate you engaging with us, exploring deeper the topics that we're presenting each evening. Uh, I believe that God loves you. God loves me. God loves us all. And he's leading us through the power of his spirit. My prayer for you is that you continue to surrender your heart to God as he continues to lead you. And that you continue to accept truth as he reveals truth to you. And as Jesus said, you will be set free. Um, we'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow night. We have a magnificent presentation for you. Who's our presenter next uh, oh, tomorrow night? It's me. Charissa, uh, do you remember the title of your presentation? Is it? Sorry to put you on the spot. It's going to be a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the t- what's the subject? Uh, we're going to look at what it means... When the Bible says an image to the beast is going to be... Mm. Oh, so we're going to begin to explore that concept of the image of the beast that's described there in Revelation 13. So you really won't want to miss it. We'll look forward to seeing you guys tomorrow night. You can join us again uh, at the live Q&A right after the fact. Um, God bless you. We'll be praying for you, and we'll see you tomorrow night. 